All right, I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter number 1. Ephesians chapter number 1. And we'll be looking tonight at the second part of the message we began on Sunday morning, uh, dealing with the subject of a prayerful thanksgiving. A prayerful thanksgiving, looking at Ephesians chapter number 1, and it is, it is covering the text that is found in verses 15 through 23. Now, on Sunday, we uh, covered down through verse number 18, so we will not uh, do much of a review of that, uh, although I do want to remind us that we did point out Paul's expression in verse 16, uh, where he says, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And we learned on Sunday how the Apostle Paul had made it a habit to uh, commend the Ephesians before the Lord. And he did that through a prayer of thanksgiving. He thanked the Lord for their faith. He thanked the Lord for their love. And of course, good reports had come to uh, Paul. He was not there with the Ephesians at this time, uh, but he had heard about their faith. He had heard about their love for the believers. Uh, he had heard that uh, these two graces of love and faith could not be separated and that faith and love go together and they should be found in the same person who is a believer. And we left off with uh, verse number 18 that uh, Paul had expressed to them that he desired that they may know what is the hope of his calling. And we talked about what hope really is. Uh, hope uh, is uh, better than happiness, but hope is a reflection of truly what it is to be happy or content in Christ. Christ is our hope. Christ is the very grace of hope. And so the hope of eternal glory is founded on Christ. So as we know more about Christ, then we know more about the hope of his calling. Now, where I want to pick up tonight is there in verse number 19. How now that we have we've kind of reviewed how the Apostle Paul had given thanks to God for their faith and for their love, he gives us two more truths that we cannot separate. Uh, we cannot separate these two thoughts: hope and power. Hope and power. Paul, as he says that you may know what the hope of his calling is, it must also be connected in verses 19 through 23 where he connects it to God's power. Look there at verse number 19 of Ephesians 1. It says, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power? which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church." which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So in these verses, in verses 19 through 23, we see how Paul now places an intentional emphasis on the power of God. 
Uh, notice he gives reference to how Christ has been raised from the dead. That is certainly mighty power. But he compares this power that raised Christ from the dead as the same power that is going to bring salvation to the individual. So the same power that brings Christ or raised him from the dead is the same power that brings a person into saving faith. It takes the omnipotent power of God to save a soul. It takes all of God's power to save a soul. And God's power is never more greatly evidenced than in the glorification of Christ. And there can never be too much power in the saving of a sinner. Paul is dealing with the reality of seeing that you can have hope because of the power of God. You can be hope-filled because of the power of God working not just in raising Christ from the grave, but that same power is working in you. Look again what he says in verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us, word, there's the key, who believe. Those who believe have this power of God working in them. It's not just some power that's possible. It is actually the power of God working in those who believe. He says clearly, according to the working of His mighty power. Paul says, I want you to know that. Remember, we ended Sunday dealing with the reality of Paul wanting them to grow in more knowledge and not becoming content, not becoming satisfied with where they are. But he says, I want you to realize the power of God, not only in your conversion, but the power of God in your day-to-day faith. You see, the power of God that regenerated us, the power of God that raised us from the dead spiritually, is the same power that formed Christ in us. Paul uh, makes this statement, and we're going to deal with this on Sunday, the very first verse of chapter 2. He says, and you hath he quickened. Uh, That word quickened means to make alive. To make something alive means it was dead or had no life. He clearly says, who were dead in trespasses and sins. It is the power of God that quickened us. And over in Colossians 2, verse number 13, he says something similar to that. He says, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. This is that power, that exceeding greatness of his power that Paul wanted the church at Ephesus to know. He says it is... Verse 20, he says, which he wrought in Christ. He wrought what? That mighty power working in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that quickened us, made us alive, brought us from from being dead in our trespasses and sins, and made us alive spiritually. He says that's how powerful it was. It was so powerful that it can only be compared to the power it took to raise Christ from the dead. That's the power it took and the power required to raise a sinner from his deadness, if you will. Christ was raised for our justification as our representative. Because Jesus Christ lives, we live. Because He is alive forevermore, we are alive forevermore. And because He lives, 
Because He has paid the penalty of sin, we are now free from sin and its penalties because He bore our sins and we're now free from the wages of sin, which was death. But there is this likeness. There is this likeness between His resurrection and our quickening or us being made alive. You'll see there that the the Bible says, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Throughout the scriptures, uh, Christ's resurrection is referred to as being the first begotten from the dead. Uh, And even the Bible refers to our regeneration in 1 Peter chapter number 1 verse 3 as a begetting or to be begotten. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So even our spiritual quickening, our awakening, is compared to this being begotten. And Christ's resurrection is referred to as a begotten or the first begotten from the dead. Again, how is Christ's resurrection similar to our spiritual deadness? Well, the reality is, is Jesus Christ in the, in the grave, His human body was in fact lifeless. Uh, and just as the natural man, apart from Christ, is without spiritual life. It's not that he has some spiritual life. It's not that he has a, an ounce of spiritual life. He is dead spiritually, lifeless spiritually. Thirdly, Jesus Christ's human body could not raise itself. Now again, how was Jesus Christ raised from the grave? He was raised from the grave by the power of God through the Holy Spirit. How are we given spiritual life? By the Holy Spirit's regenerating work. We could not raise ourselves. The Holy Spirit gives us spiritual life. Jesus' resurrection was the unaided work of God. In other words, nobody helped God raise Jesus Christ's earthly body from that tomb. Just like our spiritual conversion. It was unaided by human AIDS. It was not anything to do with what man could do. It was unaided. It's the unaided work of God. That is our regeneration. Again, Ephesians 2.1, and you hath He quickened. He did it. A dead man cannot raise himself. What did his resurrection ultimately lead to? Well, verse 20 of Ephesians 1 tells us, that when He raised Him from the dead and set Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places. Jesus Christ's resurrection led to His exaltation to the right hand of God the Father where He is seated today. He's not just seated there just as means of a a, a look or a position. He is seated there as our representative. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians 2.6 that we're already seated there. Ephesians 2.6 says, And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is one of those mysteries of God. We're already seated there, yet we're still here bodily. 
So we understand here how clearly that this idea of being dead and these mysteries and the power of resurrection, how it's compared with the power of God. Paul ends this particular chapter with really a, uh, and his prayer, this thanksgiving prayer, or this prayer of thanksgiving, praising Christ for all that he is. Look what he says in verse 21. For above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Paul declares that Christ is exalted far above all rule and all authority. He is above all principality, all power, all might, dominion, and every name that is named. You think about the most powerful name in the world. God, Jesus Christ, is way above them all. Man tends to look and we hear, we all, if we were to go down a list of powerful people throughout history, some of the names we would recognize and we would say, now that's a person that had great power. Paul declares Christ, His name is above and far above all of those things. He's above every name. He's above every title. It's not just the name of a person, but even a title. Uh, The most powerful office in, in the world. He's far above that. I find it fascinating. He's far above every dominion as well. Whether that dominion, whether that dwelling is in heaven or in earth, on earth, or in hell, or some part of the unknown universe, He is far above all of those things. In the book of Colossians, Paul writes a little more about this in Colossians 1, verses 16 through 18. Colossians 1, 16 through 18. This is a section that Paul deals with the preeminence of Christ. And we've, we've read this a number of times here over the years. But he says in verse 16 of Colossians 1, For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. This shows us that not only is He above all these things, but He is also before all these things, and all things by Him consist. For by Him all things were created. This is that same power that Paul is talking about. This mighty working power that is above every name, above every dominion, above every title, above everything that can be thought of. Paul says in Philippians 2, you don't have to turn there, in verse 9, says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He has authority over all. And I think one thing we often forget is this, his authority over the church. His authority over 
the church because it's His church. Whether it's a small or large or whatever it is, it's His church. It is His that He has the authority. He has the preeminence. He is above all. Verse 22 says, And hath put all things under His feet and gave Him to be the head over all things to the church. There it is. Honestly, if He has authority over the church, then He has all authority. The church is His authority. They are under His authority. When He was giving the, uh, one of the last commissions to His disciples in Matthew 28, 18, He said these words, He said, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto Me in heaven and in earth. And then he gave them the great commission. Go ye therefore. The therefore is there for what he just said. All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. I'm giving you the authority to go into all the world and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. The disciples were going to have the power because God gave them the power through Jesus. He says, all power has been given unto me to grant you the authority to go out and preach this truth. And then John 17, 2. John chapter 17, verse number 2. Has the, as, as thou hast given him power over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Christ has all authority. He has preeminence in the church. He is the supreme head of the church. Now this headship we refer to, uh, that is one of the things that glorifies him as mediator. We're talking about in our confession study on Sunday mornings. It is one of the things that glorifies his office as mediator is his headship over the church. He is prophet, priest, and king. Think about it, that in the reality of the church. He is prophet, he is priest, he is king. Think about the implications of what that means to the church. If Jesus Christ says, I am the head, I am the authority, he is ultimately saying, I am the prophet, I am the priest, and I am the king. That glorifies him for who he is. He rules always in goodness. He performs all of those offices for our salvation, and he communicates good things to us. He never rules badly. Christ has never ruled wrongly. He's never ruled unjustly. He has never been in a situation where He has done wrong to somebody or shortchanged somebody. He communicates good things to us. There's been a running theme tonight. I'm not so sure this was intentional, but this is happening. In, in Psalm 8, there is a reference the psalmist writes about God's excellent name. Our scripture reading was the name of the Lord as a strong tower. The psalmist in Psalm 8 writes about God's excellent name. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. 
Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. He performs all of these things. His name is, in fact, most excellent. Again, back to our text here as we will finish this out. Notice notice what he says here, this final verse in this particular section. With regard to the church, he says, gave him to be the head over all things to the church, comma, which is his body. Now that's a very important statement. The church is his body. The fullness of him that filleth all in all. This is not a minor thing. This is the reality of that the church who he is the head over, it is his body. It is the very fullness or the completeness or the picture of him that fills the all in all. He is in fact what makes the church the church. Now you remember as we talked a little bit on Sunday and as we thought about Uh, when Paul made mention to them about knowing the riches of the glory in his saints. Remember, Paul was talking about something that only his children would know about. He was talking about the elect who were the Lord's portion, the Lord's inheritance. And by his elect, he would be glorified. Now remember, I mentioned to us that Paul seemed to be talking in verse number 18 about a heavenly inheritance, about the place that Jesus had gone to prepare for us. And remember how I pointed out in 2 Corinthians 12 where Paul gave the illustration of uh, he knew a man once who went in and he, he saw undescribable, unspeakable where he could not speak it. And again, oftentimes we think about this inheritance, the riches of the glory of his inheritance as just being something we're looking forward to. I think the Apostle Paul really, as, he, as we draw this section to a close, he really brings us face to face with the reality that this spiritual inheritance isn't just something for eternity or for the future. It's something that we're supposed to enjoy the blessings of now. We understand that as we're in Christ and we're part of His church, we are part of His body. We are part of where demonstration of the fullness of Him that fills all in all. These things ought to constrain us to come to the place where we say, listen, because of His love for me, I want to live in thanksgiving for Him. Remember I pointed out Sunday how Paul made a habit of praying for other people. He prayed because of their faith. He prayed and commended them to God because of their love. Really, I think there's a lesson for all of us here that Paul thanks God for their faith, hope, and love. And he prays that they would continue in that knowledge. 
that they would continue in hope. Of course, respecting that heavenly inheritance that's waiting. But also remembering the powerful working of God in them now. Paul really has demonstrated to us what a prayerful thanksgiving ought to look like. Now again, thanksgiving is, is not necessarily here what Paul's talking about. What Obviously, what, what we're talking about here and traditionally. But I think the greatest aspect of thanksgiving ought to be our thankfulness of God working in others. Remember, Paul's emphasis has not been on himself. It's been on his thanksgiving to God for others' faith. You know, really, as I've thought about this even since Sunday and thought about how we were going to bring this particular chapter to a conclusion tonight, I thought, you know, how often do I think about being thankful for other believers? Being thankful for their faith. Being faithful for grace and hope and love. Now, sometimes that's hard because we, we often, people don't always live up to our expectations. They don't always do what we want them to do. But if God has done a work in them, imperfections and all, we ought to be thankful for them. We ought to be thankful that they are in fact part of the body of Christ. I asked myself this question of the last time I've thanked God for other people's faith and His working in them. I think it really is a challenge for all of us to think about tonight about God's powerful working not just in us, but his working in other believers. This is what I believe Paul had in mind when he talked about this mighty power of God. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that saved your soul. And that really is an amazing thought. To think it, it makes us totally think differently about how God took that which was dead in trespasses and sins. We're going to deal with that on Sunday. And in the power of God, raised us up by giving us spiritual life. What an amazing picture that is. Well, tonight we're going to conclude with our reading from the Valley of Vision on page 354. Page 354, and this is entitled, uh, The Lord's Day. And uh, we'll read through this and then we'll, we'll, pray, we'll pray and we'll be dismissed tonight. Page 354, chapter, I think we're still in chapter number 8 of the, the Valley of Vision. It says, O Lord, my Lord, this is thy day, the heavenly ordinance of rest, the open door of worship, the record of Jesus' resurrection, the seal of the Sabbath to come, the day when saints militant and triumphant unite in endless song. I bless thee for the throne of grace that here free favor reigns, that open access to it is through the blood of Jesus that the veil is torn aside and I can enter the holiest and find thee ready to hear, waiting to be gracious, inviting me to pour out my, my needs, encouraging my desires, promising to give more than I ask or think. But while I bless thee, shame and confusion are mine. I remember my past misuse of sacred things, my irreverent worship, my base ingratitude, my cold, dull praise. Sprinkle all my past Sabbaths with the cleansing blood of Jesus, and may this day witness deep improvement in me. 
Give me in rich abundance the blessings the Lord's day was designed to impart. May my heart be fast bound against worldly thoughts or cares. Flood my mind with peace beyond understanding. May my meditations be sweet, my acts of worship life, liberty, joy. My drink, my drink the streams that flow from thy throne. My food, the precious word. My defense, the shield of faith. And may my heart be more knit to Jesus. Let's pray tonight. Let's go ahead and stand and we'll be dismissed in prayer this evening. And uh, thanking the Lord for his mighty work uh, in our life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this evening. We thank you as the Apostle Paul thanked you for these Ephesians faith. Tonight, Lord, we pause to just thank you for those that we know who you have raised from the dead. Spiritually dead in trespasses and sins, and yet the mighty working power of God has given them spiritual life. Lord, may we truly be thankful for our salvation. May we truly be thankful for the salvation and the working in others around us. Lord, I pray that we would get our eyes off of ourselves, and Lord, see the great importance that it is to pray for others who your power has also worked mightily in. Father, we thank you for the many blessings and provisions in our life. And Lord, we thank you for a day that we can think upon those things and celebrate those things as believers. Lord, give us strength in the days ahead. And may we truly glorify you in everything that we say and do. Lord, may we please you with our thoughts and our actions and our attitudes. And may Christ be exalted in our lives. Lord, we praise you and thank you for all these things. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.